This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. As now and always, as it ever as it ever is, as it ever has been, as it ever will be. Same as it ever I'm was. <laughs> same as it ever was. Yeah, same as it ever was. Welcome to our book podcast, where we talk about books that we haven't read before and might be on your to read to be read list. But but as of like by the time we're recording the podcast, one of us has read them. Yeah, I think that would be a really bad podcast if we were both talking about a book we had never read before, and we still hadn't read it. Let's and we were just kind of talking about what we thought it might be like. Let's be honest; our listeners could probably go back and find one or two episodes that feel dangerously close to that vibe. Sure, sure. But we always I think come that through. There are definitely some that we haven't gotten, or that people have disagreed with us on, and that's fine. That's their right. <laughs> but this week, I'm going to tell Andrew about The Water Dancer by Tanahasi Coates. It's the book that I read for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a Patreon recommendation from Stephanie. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie did not give any like further instructions about the book. Uh, they actually sent in like a list of books and after each of them just wrote amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I picked one that seemed to fit our schedule and what we might want it to cover. So I've yeah. been interested to read some quotes for the show, but we've always kind of struggled with how and when to do nonfiction and knowing that he had this novel come out even before Stephanie suggested, I was like, ooh, I hope we get around to that. Yeah. And if, if the show goes on for long enough, eventually we'll get around to everything. That's the plan. But, um, I don't know. If, I don't know. We should say that every week. The plan is to cover every book that's been written. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you're doing here. For the next hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, Tanahasi Coates, you implied that. Uh, that he wrote a bunch of nonfiction before he wrote this. And it's true. He did do that. <laughs> this is his first novel, not his first fiction though. Um, yeah. The first fiction of, I honestly don't know what the first fiction he's ever written is. The The most notable stuff that came before this was his writing for Marvel comics yeah. for uh, Black Panther and Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, at least one of those I think is, is ongoing, but uh, he was, uh, so he was born in 1975. Uh, he, is a writer and journalist best known for his work in the Atlantic and elsewhere. It's a monthly um, magazine but, and a website. Yes, but but most notably he wrote uh, for the Atlantic for, for many years and wrote uh, articles about, about uh, like the American response to the first black president, mm-hmm. about reparations. Yeah, he was, the, like, case, I, I was the case for reparations is the 2014 article that he is like, that made me famous or at least as as famous as a journalist can be. 
Yeah, like, and he was writing about really tough stuff yeah. for years before that. Like, I, I was reading the, uh, the like late two. I think it was in two thousand eight, like before Obama had even been elected. About about like Bill Cosby going around and talking about like blackness and conservatism in America. And this mm-hmm. is, I think, pre his like the big trial. I, I am sure, sure things were known Cosby. at that point. But it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But before that had become like the one defining thing about what Bill Cosby's whole deal yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was thinking about when I had first encountered his work because to my mind, I think, and I think this is accurate. You can, you can tell me if this nope. was your experience of, of him as well. But he, like when I, when I, in my early twenties, was you know just developing like media literacy, mm. and you know I I think I bought into a lot of the post racial talk that was happening uh, early in Obama's first term. But then I started reading some of Coates' writing, and he was before like before Black Lives Matter, before um, a lot of the things that have happened in the last like half decade that have. Um, that have really increased awareness among white people in America about like the ongoing endemic racism in America. Yeah. <laughs> he was writing about this stuff in a really like compelling and like, a- and high profile way. Yes. In a way that like broke through whatever my media bubble was at the time and like the late, 2000s and early 2010s i don't know if that's where that, you ran into it that seems to in your life yeah that's probably i feel like i remember a colbert report interview where he talked about playing D. and i was just and that was not the like literally the first i'd heard of him but that it struck me and it, it continues to strike me as like folks in our like you know he's older than us as you said he's born in 1975 but like the kind of Gen X into millennial, late millennial age cohort mm-hmm. of just kind of a media omnivorousness that I cert- like really helps me personally like see myself in some voices or just kind of like builds a cultural bridge to some folks who are like, oh yeah, he's a nerd who plays D&D. I played, I'm a nerd who plays <laughs> D&D. And then like I am a little less intimidated by... uh the scholarly, you know, work that he brings to some of his writing, because then also he's going to go write some Marvel comics, you know, I think. Sure. And and that will build a bridge to this work, which I think, you know, The Water Dancer is a story set in the Antebellum South, pre-Civil War. It is about escaping. It also from has slavery. magic in it. Yeah, it is escaping. It is about escaping from slavery, but it certainly feels like a... Um, a pulpy adventure story and feels of a piece with some modern sci-fi fantasy that we've read for the show. Yeah. He was talking about one um, in an interview that he did around when this book came out, talking about like his inspiration for it. And he's talking about Harriet Tubman and how nobody is quite sure how she helped as many (laughs) enslaved people to freedom as she did. Like how, how this, woman who's apparently prone to fainting spells. <laughs> oh, is this that NPR interview? Yeah, yeah I saw yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the NPR one and 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 Coates is just like, what if it was magic? What if she did it with magic? Yeah. And what kind of what kind of narratives would that unlock for me? Mm-hmm. Um so that was kind of where he's his entry point for this book and then he also talked a lot about the research into the civil war that he was doing in his like career at the Atlantic and how that 
served as like the backdrop for a lot of research for this book. It's just like, like he was really interested in, um, in learning more about just like the day to day lives mm-hmm. of enslaved people and how they lived and just the, the minutia of their experience instead of like focusing on like a big picture, I don't know, like brutalism and, and, and torture stuff. Like yeah. he, he talks about not like specifically not wanting to focus on that so much in this book. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit more about he, he himself. Uh, his Please. father was a Vietnam War vet and a uh, one-time Black Panther, as well as a publisher who focused on publishing Black authors. Um, that imprint was called Black Classic Press and and is still active, uh, as far as I can tell. Okay. Um, and his mom was a teacher, and uh, Coates read a lot of the books that his father published in that you know through that through black classic press and his mom apparently assigned essays as punishment <laughs> neat and so you could definitely see you could draw the line directly from those two things to the career that he then oh went my on to God. the self-flagellation of a journalist right mm-hmm. that just like comes from oh i'm being punished by my mom that's good okay yeah sure. but yeah that, that was you know that that's where his that that's where his career came from like he starting in the in the his byline credits are bonkers there's a lot there's a lot of stuff and and there was even um in 2016 2017 it was a big collection of his essays in the atlantic uh called eight years in power about uh about the first black president like but but with the knowledge that the Trump presidency was coming with, with a full knowledge of the extent of the backlash that Obama would, would receive face. Um, And um, yeah, so that was, that was his last big nonfiction thing that's, that's come out as of this recording. His previous two works, I don't think we mentioned my name, beautiful struggle in 2008 and Mm -hmm. between the world and me in 2015. Um, Did you read one or both of those? I I have not. I have between the world and me. Um, mm-hmm. And it's oh okay, that's what I'm thinking of. It, you, it's a book it you've is, been meaning. Uh, to read, it is un- so it is legitimately a book I've been meaning to read, and the you know there's a lot of stuff that we are. He is like a, a lot of black authors these days, like listed on the like. Here's the list of books that white people should read, and like I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't disagree. Um, that's one I haven't gotten to, and I'm glad I got mm-hmm. to read this one in for our show. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He is also the he. There was an interview with him recently on Polygon.com, I think, about the. That's a wild place to. Well, it was about the it was about the Marvel writing that he was doing. I guess, uh, yeah, sure. And okay, it was, and it's also because he was tapped to write the upcoming Superman film, um, and he is kind of bracing himself and talking about like what that's going to be like. Um, yeah, I bet the fan re- reaction to that one. I don't know if there's a way he can win, which kind of I sucks. hope that maybe he, if anything goes wrong, I hope he can just blame it on J.J. Abrams because J.J. Abrams is also involved. J.J. <laughs> Abrams seems, I don't know if he's happy to to take full I, he must blame be. for every creative problem that every project he's been involved in has had, but I mean, if that's just his role in Hollywood, then I guess that's fine. J.J., 
taking it for our si- taking all of our sins for us. Um, and just quick note on <laughs> <laughs> quick note on oh, this no. book. It was published in 2019, and uh, he started development on it back in 2008, 2009, as you mentioned with the you know, the research that he was doing. Um, and the other nugget I found was that it was part of it was the first book selected for the revived Oprah's Book Club. Yes. Mm-hmm. On Apple TV Plus. That sentence breaks my brain a little bit, but it's like and I always I get a little mad because Oprah's book club has raised the profile of a lot of really good worthwhile yeah. fiction. And then it's raised the profile of a lot of not worthwhile fiction the, like The Secret. And Dr. Phil. And <laughs> who is a fiction. Just, Yes. Like his entire career and his entire being is a fiction. And Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is even more of a fiction than Dr. Phil, but. And I guess, I mean, you know, like the like a poet once said, you take the good, you take the bad, you take the both, and then you have the facts of life. Yeah. You know, some people are going to encompass both good and bad things, but it does. Whenever we stumble upon another Oprah book, that's always my first. My first thought is always like, oh, yeah, the, the thing that brought us the secret. Great. Yeah. Yeah, from the authors of The Secret. <laughs> uh, well, I got a secret for you, Andrew. We need to take a break. And Shh, then. Secret. And then we'll come back and talk about the book. Okay. Andrew, you know it's not a secret? N- yes, because it's not a secret. But you tell me, just so we're on the same page. Sometimes. People need help. Mm-hmm. That's the that's not a secret, and it's, it's okay. Uh, and I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, BetterHelp, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. A lot of folks, myself included, feel a lot of anxiety about things opening up these days, about just like dealing with people in ways that every, we haven't every done. Every time I have an in-person conversation with somebody I haven't seen in 18 months, I, I just, I hope they are not rating me in their head yep. based on how good I am at conversation yep. because those reviews would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, a lot of us are re-encountering parts of our lives that we put on pause or were tougher than they used to be. And, um, and sometimes you need to talk that through with someone. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with them in a safe, private, online environment in under 48 hours. And you can send a message to them at any time. The service is available for clients worldwide. And licensed professional counselors have a broad range of expertise. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com overdue. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, betterhelp.com slash overdue. BetterHelp. It's not a secret. Craig, I need you to tell me about the water. I need you to tell me about the dancing. Uh-huh. I needed you to tell me about all of it. Okay. Tell me about the water dancer. <laughs> okay. Uh, what did you know anything about this book before I was like, let's put it on the schedule? I did not. I didn't really either. I knew <laughs> that it was recommended to us. I knew that Coates had written it. I knew that there was magic involved. And it wasn't until like I literally cracked open the the Kindle spine that mm-hmm. I 
realize that we were in for a story set in the antebellum south i had not yeah i kind of like sometimes i go into a book where i'm like i don't need to know that much i'm gonna go find out what happens <laughs> well i mean the the first thing i i found as i was researching it was that it draws a lot of comparisons to uh colson whitehead's mm. the Underground railroad which sure. came out in 2016 i think and and which we recorded and we've recorded an episode on this within the last two to three years and that's as specific as i can be for you right and now. it is now a, a streaming television show I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but um it it too took like a took place in the antebellum south and elsewhere in in pre-civil war america and it also mixed in real things with fantastical elements yes yes um to help drive its point home from from what i can gather and i have not done a deep dive on like if there are people's blogs comparing the two note for note this feels like a I, and I don't want this to be sound overly pejorative. This sounds like a more kind of straightforward or genre-y book than that one did in my recollection of our discussion. Like, well, I think that's that's partially intentional on on Coates's part. Like he he is drawing from his experience writing for superheroes, and he talks specifically yeah. about like superhero stuff. Yes, when he's he, like in, in interviews for this book. Yeah, so it, it's very much like the Underground Railroad is. It's question is what if the Underground Railroad was literally a a railroad that was underground, <laughs> which is just like bigger in scale than like what if somebody had superpowers? Yes, yes, yes. If yes, that yes. makes sense, yeah. Um. So, and this I'll say up up top, like this one has some rhythms that felt very similar to me. To. And it's not the book. This book is not YA fiction, but it it had rhythms that felt very similar to some of the like YA fantasy adventure books that we've read. Um, It didn't feel too dissimilar from something like any of the Broken Earth books. Like it just Mm -hmm. had a pretty classic like rise and fall. It had, you know, it was all centered on this one character who has this ability that he's learning to use and et cetera, et cetera. And it happens to be weaving through a historical fiction setting. Um, again, I don't, I don't say that to be pejorative. It's just kind of like, I was like, Oh, this is like oddly comfortable for a store in the reading experience for a story that is about enslavement and, abolition and actually will probably leave me thinking a little bit more about my own like perspective as a white person than I probably gave the book credit for as I was starting my read um yeah so our main character Hiram um was born into slavery in the antebellum south on a tobacco plantation in Virginia named Lockless um his father is the owner of the plantation a white man um his mother a uh, black woman is sold off when uh, Hiram is like eight or nine years old. I think he's younger. Okay. And uh, it's likely taking place. I think it's taking place in like the 1830s and 40s. We've alluded to Harriet Tubman. She does appear in this book. She does have superpowers. Nice. And uh, she in real life rescued her like members of her family from a plantation in maryland in 1849 there's a sequence in this book that pretty much feels like that's what's going on 
and the Fugitive Slave Act wasn't until 1850, and there's a sequence in Philadelphia where, like, Northerners do not have to abide by any laws relating to slavery, which feels pre-Fugitive Slave Act. So I think we're in the late mm-hmm. 1840s. Okay, cool. Um, this feels really steeped in Coates' research. Lockless is on the decline. So imagine that you came to the quote-unquote new world and you set up your tobacco farm and you were like, I'm going to make all sorts of money because I'm not going to yeah. pay any of the people who work on this land. I'm going to own them instead. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Well, you're like drive and greed for capital is just going to tear the earth and soil apart. And after- That's, that is ridiculous <laughs> socialist propaganda. And I don't understand how capitalism has ever resulted in the exploitation of any person. Also, all the people that you own who have developed actual expertise in tilling the soil, um, you don't listen to any of them because you own them. So, yeah, uh, you just make them work harder, and then when it stops yielding crops, what you have to do to have any money whatsoever is to then sell the people you own. So that is like where we are picking up this place where Hylum lives, and you know, not by his own choosing, of course. Um, is this? Well, so I'm already really mad. Yeah. about capitalism <laughs> again. <laughs> This happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, like, if you come into this novel having read any of Coates's writing um, or reading other, like, black authors who have done the research on this era, um, thinking of folks like Jamel Bowie, um, mm-hmm. who does a lot of writing on this era and writing on Frederick Douglass and stuff like that, um, you will not be, like, you'll just, like, occasionally hit a kernel where it's like, oh, this just could have... This is just an essay you wrote, but you found a good character to put it in. And I and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just like, oh, I've encountered this author's version of that idea and like how they've processed that historical fact. Um, yeah, we can talk a bit. I don't, I don't want to do it now. I want to get through the, the bulk of the plot stuff first. But sure. some, some of the stuff from professional reviews that I brought uh, to, to maybe talk wait. about is about <laughs> the... I'm a professional, Andrew. Excuse Just me. Like you know, like Yo, you know what I mean. Reviewers at the at the at the NPR and the New York Crimes and so on and so on. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> I I brought some stuff about the like evaluation of his work, particularly in the context of his work as a as an essayist with mm. a really strong and distinctive voice. Sure. Anyway, okay. go on with yep. your go so on um your so Lockless is sort of like a synecdoche for Virginia for. Is that how it's pronounced? I think it was synecdoche. I think you got it, but you uh, put the stress okay. on the wrong. Side. But I used the word right, which I'm very you proud of. It was of. great. Thank it you. wasn't like you and erstwhile. Yes. Um, which is an ongoing struggle for me personally. It, it is a schenectady <laughs> of Virginia <laughs> and to a lesser extent, the South as a whole, um, where these older families are like they're they're losing their stature, they're losing their resources, and this is playing out on the human level, which you mentioned before the break, of families that are being divided. As we said, Hiram's mother was sold, um, other families are being 
broken apart. People are like, maybe they're just running. They're leaving their wife or their family member behind because they know that they're going to get sold off anyway. They're being sold to estates and plantations that are further in, like into the deep South or in the, like the newer territories in the West where there is less of a, like, moderating northern influence or you know things like that where well and we're still in the era of it when we're admitting new like states and territories to the union it's we're still like one free territory one slave territory right um and so the i think the term in the book is like when you're deep in when folks are deep in their enslavement they're caught it's like in the coffin of slavery and it's like that's where the worst of it is. Um, and that mm-hmm. is tri- typically in the book, you know, portrayed as being further down South and, and out West where things are new. The way that Coates sets up the structure of this society. Um, and like we are introduced to all of it through Lockless, but it is, you know, writ large. It's kind of, I was struck by it. He uses very specific terms. So everyone who is enslaved is referred to as the tasked, um, kind of a like I'm not even sure what you would call that f- that like figure of speech or like grammar. I get what you I get what you're saying though. Um, yeah. But it focuses on the labor. It focuses on the, how they view their own relationship to it. It's both an adjective and a noun, and it completely eschews like just calling people slaves, which is useful to the book. Um, unless yeah. like the people speaking would do that, right? You know what it reminds me of the most vividly is like a a sci-fi story that is using an alien species to comment on something that is yeah. happening in modern day earth. Yeah, it feels of that tradition. <laughs> yeah. And and it was kind of it's interesting to encounter it here. So there's the tasked and also you might hear about the task, which is slavery. Um and then there is the quality who are the land and property owners. And it's capital T, capital Q for both of those things. Um, and so the calling them the quality is this like, I, it's fascinating because like it means everything and nothing at the same time. Well, and it's also got the same sort of potential for both praise and derision that yes. calling somebody the talent uh-huh. conveys. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, you're, that's a good way to put it. Um, and it, he talks about it like only, you know, it, it corresponds to their manner and their perception and their status, but not what they do. Uh, the quote to d- discern these two is, sloth was literal death for us, the task, he's saying, while for them it was the whole ambition of their lives. So that's how those two play off each other. Um, and then like the third main category of folks we meet are the low whites who are, you know, white men who do not own big tracts of land do not own people um and they are for you know for them to be low it is implied that there must be people above them and lots of how they are used in the book and in the society is that they are their disenfranchisement from the economy and society um is weaponized against black people um This was a quote that I read. I was like, oh, I've read this in a Coates essay. They were degraded. Yeah, I mean, that stuff's happening in, like, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. That that is, has, that that concept has been around. Yes. They were a degraded and downtrodden uh, nation enduring the boot of the quality solely for the right to put a boot of their own to the tasked. So that's the, that's the hierarchy we got. There are. That that sort of thing lives on. Yeah. Now. Uh Uh-huh. In. 
like using racial wedge issues to break up like class solidarity. Correct. Yeah. 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 Um, and there are uh, free black folks that we meet later in the book, um, but in the first half of the book, they're they're pretty not you know on the on the scene. Um, so the setup is that Hiram um, is special. The beginning of the book, we meet him driving a coach with his brother Maynard, um, who is white, uh, and Hiram is like Maynard's you know personal valet and servant and everything um and they're on a bridge after some big to do and Hiram sees a vision of his mother doing the water dance which is this uh you know among other things this competition where you put a jug of water on top of your head and you dance and the first person who spills a drop out of the jug is out sure um and the thing about Hiram is he has a perfect memory, a literal perfect photographic memory. Um, it is as special as you might think it is, and it you know plagues him and benefits him as you think it might, uh, except for the fact that his mother and I think his Aunt Emma, people who were very close to him when he was young and were taken away, like he can't quite pull them. They escape him. Um, it, that feels very classic comic books to me. Like you have someone who has a special power, but there is like one weakness or what is it in, uh, let's make a final fantasy reference, Andrew. Oh, good. In, oh, good. It's, it was, it's going to be about that time yeah. in the episode isn't uh, it? <laughs> in final fantasy two slash four for the super Nintendo. Okay. How like Rydia can learn all sorts of magic, but she won't learn fire because her town was burned down. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. it's pretty much exactly like that. Um, okay. And so as Hiram does, um, he's going across this bridge with his brother and all of a sudden he, he's seeing this vision of his mother that he's never had as quite a clear picture before. There's this blue light shining around her and then all of a sudden he's in the water and he doesn't really know how he got there and his brother's drowning and somehow he gets out of the river his brother doesn't, and he is not found until later, and he is found somewhere else on the riverbank than when he clearly would have fallen in. Um, and then the book does a time jump backwards to do all of the world building that I've kind of been alluding to. Uh, the other facts that we learn is that Hiram, after his mother uh, was sold off, he was kind of adopted by this woman, Thena, who is very hardened against the other people in their community because all of her children were sold away. Um, He has a woman named Sophia that he is developing feelings for. But the big thing about Hiram is that because he was sort of special and because he was the master's son, he was brought in to live in the house, was given some lessons by a guy named Mr. Fields and tutored because he developed, he, you know, demonstrated this special memory ability. Mm -hmm. And then after a few years, his dad was like, hey, cool, I kind of like that you're my son because you're so smart and clever and stuff, but my real, quote-unquote, real son is a wasteoid, and he needs <laughs> someone to protect him and be like the be a good person and like prop him up, essentially. Now, again, this is the person who owns 
this child being like, you're going to make my crappy son good by just being Uh near him, please. Mm -hmm. Maynard does not, he, uh, you know, I, he dies, uh, and he doesn't make it through the rest of the book. And like he, the fact that he is a, is a wasteoid is really important because it like allows for all of the uncertainty around this plantation to continue because the only heir to it is Hiram and that's not going to happen. Maynard had an intended bride, this woman Corinne, who we'll hear a little bit more about later, who didn't have any other prospects due to her parents having died. And so maybe she'll like fix Maynard up and like the goal of Hiram is to like get Maynard to this marriage, which does not happen because he does mm-hmm. in fact die. Okay. Um, and the there's the big reveal of this book that the first big reveal of this book that happens about a third of the way through is after Maynard dies. Hiram and Sophia, who've had a budding relationship, decide to run away. Now, Sophia has her own reasons for running. It's not quite clear if they're actually, like, in love with each other or not. Like, Hiram is developing feelings for her, but he doesn't quite know what to do with them. Okay. There's a guy named Georgie uh, in town who is a free black man who seems to know about something called the underground. It might be a community in the swamp where black people live free. It's unclear what exactly it is, but Georgie can help you get there. And I was like, okay, cool. We're going to go on the run. We're going to see what's going on. Nope. Georgie narked on them immediately. Oh, man, Georgie. And it was like a real gut-wrenching moment where I was like, oh, I thought we were going to get this uh, on-the-run story and in fact, we did not. It was a bummer. Oh, classic Georgie. Classic Georgie. Um, Sophia and Hiram are separated. Hiram, after being put through this like really grueling, um, a, a new person like purchases him from these folks called Ryland's Hounds, who are like they kind of function almost like ring rates in this book, but they <laughs> they are, you know, low white men who are paid to go out and like bring back runaways. Um, mm-hmm. And then they put them in a jail and then new people can buy them or whatever. And he is put in this situation where whoever bought him is like putting him in a pit and then letting him loose to go like part of a quote unquote hunt at night where like white men can uh, like chase folks down in the middle of the night for fun Mm -hmm. i guess Mm -hmm. whatever after a few times of those he escapes sort of doing the same thing that happened to him on the bridge where he was in this really high intensity situation he started to have a memory of something from his time on the plantation with his family he saw some cool blue lights he thought he saw the plantation again and then he wasn't where he was before he kind of teleported a little bit, not too far, but just a little bit. And then Corinne's uh, man, Hawkins, a black man, finds him, brings him to Corinne, and the book takes off from there. Okay. Do you have any questions so far? No, I don't really. Just like tell me more about magic. Tell me more about how that magic develops. So, you know? yeah. Okay. So Corinne reveals herself. She's a white woman. She was supposed to marry Maynard. She reveals herself to be the, the leader of the Virginia Underground, Andrew. Mm-hmm. 
and she is running. I don't know why I got strong Fight Club vibes from her operation. I know that's not what the book is going for. I mean, for. I think it's because we're re- we have a contractually required number of 1990s pop culture references sure. that we need to make in every episode, and so Fight Club's what you drew. Yes, it, it something about uh, people working in secret solidarity in basements. I don't know, causing and chaos and not being allowed to talk about their club. Yes, that's true. You're not allowed to talk about the club that they were in. Um, She reveals to Hiram that they were sort of behind the hunt that he was a part of, that she has purchased his contract from his father, that they want his gift, what they call his ability of conduction, which he doesn't even fully understand, which is this Mm -hmm. blue light memory magic that seems like an extension of his perfect recall, but is an action actually like driven by like emotional memories that he has to learn over the course of the book to tap into. And he's kind of peeved that they like put him through the ringer of that hunt to like mm-hmm. test him and get him ready, which sucks. And he has to get over that to like become an agent in the underground which involves a lot of forging documents and you know learning about met, like owners slave owners by like reading all of their papers and then forging documents using their hand and letters yeah. and correspondence and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um eventually so that, that's like his relationship with Corinne over the course of the book is really tense. Corinne is this um upper class white woman who is an abolitionist. She's posing as the Southern Belle that she was before she went to college in New York and became an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And she is like kind of running, f- she's running a fake plantation where she is there. There are a bunch of black people that work there with her in concert in, in her abolitionist goals. But anytime it's like somebody comes visits, like they put on a show effectively Mm -hmm. um it also means there's a lot of deceit in what she's doing her aims are probably more violent than some people might like but also there's a lot of really good language in the book about her being motivated okay so what what does um Hiram say he says there was a certain distance between us their war was against the task, and mine would be a war for those who were tasked. Mm-hmm. Uh, their opposition was a kind of vanity, a hatred of slavery that far outranked any love of the slave. Mm-hmm. And she is portrayed as this you know, white woman who is very aware of the limitations that are placed on her as a woman uh, in society and gives good voice to that, but also is just like... Dinkin with that white privilege and <laughs> has, you know, doesn't lead, doesn't coexist with black people except in the fight. Sure. Um, and Hiram has his own personal objections to that. Um, he moves on to work for the Philadelphia Railroad. They they get him up north. Um, and it was kind of fun to just be in a book. If I don't know, people have watched Mayor Easttown, people have been living the like the Phil- <laughs> it was kind of really rad. I don't read a lot of books set in Philadelphia, and it was 
kind of. Maybe we should read. Maybe we should do a Philadelphia month. Maybe we should do a Philadelphia month. Andrew, I took what? such joy in reading the Philadelphia sections. E- okay, because Coates does a good job. Coates okay. is like, let's talk about how you can walk from the school to the Delaware. Let's talk mm-hmm. about hanging out on Ninth Street. Let's talk okay. about Bainbridge Street. Like, let's go to all the places all the that Craig's streets. been to. <laughs> um, yeah. Let like it was just kind of really. I don't know. I'm sure other people get this when they read books set in places that they live and stuff like everybody in New York loves seeing things in New York. I'm sure. Yeah. They love like sex in the city and all that <laughs> and stuff. See girls and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Those are the only two stories set in New York. And mm-hmm. except for uh on order SVU. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Oh, I'm sorry. Friends too. Huh? That was set in and New York, friends. right? I mean, arguably, <laughs> any version of New York where those six people could live in those apartments is arguably not our version of reality, but that's fine. So it was with great pride and joy and and realness that I read the Philadelphia section because it is like Hiram being in a city where there are rich black people not and poor white people and... It's just like he sees a, a wider, you know, a more diverse range of human experiences, mm-hmm. and he immediately follows it with this passage. This astonishing portrait was set against the most offensive odors known to man. I did not <laughs> smell the air here in this city so much as feel it. It seemed to be born in the gutters, then rose up to mingle with the dead horses in the street, and finally joined the fumes of manufacture and production until the odor was an invisible fog that hung over the whole city. And I was like, listen. Rude, honestly. Like every rudeness, there's some truth there. <laughs> and I just, I felt insulted and seen at the same time. I find Philadelphia has less of a stink than New York does. That's good to hear. Yeah. Or like New Orleans has a stink mm. that Philadelphia doesn't have. The, and, and I'm, but maybe I've just lived here long enough that I know, like, my <laughs> nose is a part to of the you. Stink. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, this passage is, of course, also about like an industry and people living on top of each other versus the, you know, the more rural nature of the South. Um, but it was it was I'm taking that context for fun because I felt really called out by it anyway. Yeah. Um, his time up in Philly is interesting. He meets Raymond and Otha White, who are based on William and Peter Still. They're real people who worked on the Underground Railroad. You can read um, about William Still in his collection, The Underground Still. Ra- you can still read about him, you idiot. Um, he wrote the Underground Railroad Records. Coates gives a shout out and an author's note. Um, their thing is interesting because their whole operation is being done out in the open. Um, mm-hmm. There, you know, there are black families to see and fight for and integrate new people into. And sure, because well, Philly's mostly chill. Yeah. Except for like big parts of South Philadelphia. Oh, yes. <laughs> Most the, yes. The the book does uh is pretty optimistic about this version of Philly. Um at the time, obviously I know that, that is not it well, he does name check the yellow fever epidemic and how um there was a lot of lies about black people being immune to the yellow fever and then a whole bunch of parts of around Washington Square were built on top of the graves of black people yeah. who mm-hmm. were brought in to die on purpose. So, Fun. you know, Coates doesn't miss an opportunity there and yet we see a, a, a brighter future possible for free folks up in the north. Um, and this is how he also gets 
He gets to go to this convention in New York, Andrew, where mm-hmm. every freedom is being argued for. And it's Ooh. he like it's portrayed as this like carnival of freedom where there's like people <laughs> who are abolitionists. There are people who are arguing for women's suffrage. He's literally like walking down like a like a thoroughfare hearing stump speeches. There's like women's suffrage, uh, children labor law people, uh, people saying that all the workers should own the deeds to the to the factories, people preaching free love and people preach like literally uses the phrase free love people fighting for rights for native American folks. And it was just like, you can see Coates making a very concerted argument with this chapter of like all the stuff that we are fighting for. People have been fighting for it for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is, it's just interesting. And he, it, Hiram is a good character to encounter that kind of stuff. And I guess I wonder if he's also like, by having all those things gathered together in one place, he's trying to draw some kind of, uh, he's trying to draw attention to the fact that it's all kind of interrelated. Yes. I guess maybe. And again, maybe this is just me still being mad about capitalism from before (laughs) and wanting everybody to be in solidarity with everybody against the powerful. But even when he, even when he first gets to the fake, to the Potemkin estate that Corinne is running, he remarks that like, everybody clears the table and does the dishes. It's like the smallest little thing where he's like, oh, there aren't servants here, and that's wild to yeah. him. Um, while he's up in New York, he gets to finally meet Harriet freaking Tubman, who he has cool. heard about before, referred to as Moses, among other monikers. People have been telling tall tales about her superhuman abilities. Corinne has told him that she has the power of conduction also. Mm-hmm. And it is from Harriet Tubman uh, and her taking him on it on her trip to Maryland to free her family members that he actually sees like real powerful conduction in action. And again, going back to the Philly thing, she literally goes from some like junky docks on the Delaware River that I have definitely seen personally in my life. <laughs> and she like uses her magic to walk across the river and like the way that it works is I don't it's kind of this interesting I saw a reference to Stephen King in one review it kind of has this like nebulous magic quality that some fantasy fiction does where it's not like a magic system right it's not right. Brandon Sanderson and we love a magic we system do love a magic system on this podcast but this is more um you need to have water nearby which is something that Hiram has to learn and you need to tap into a deep memory of some kind and you need to start telling the story of that memory and you also need some sort of like uh inception like totem like you do need Harriet Tubman has a cool staff from a mm-hmm. from a tree from when she was uh in enslavement and Hiram ends up getting this like wood carving that he made that he gave to someone at one point. Um, and then as you tell this story, the people in the memory start to take shape around you in this fog. And as you walk across the water, then you can wind up somewhere else. And the, the more powerful the memory, the further you can go. I think Tubman says at one point, like, you do need to have been the place you're going. It, you, it's sort of like Nightcrawler X-Men rules. Like, you you can't 
Bamf to where you haven't seen or else you might like wind up in a wall or something mm-hmm. um so she does like lay out a few of the rules i don't know i got some interesting like <sighs> there's not a clear mentor mentee relationship she's only in about like three scenes and she doesn't like she's not like his morpheus or something right it is more another okay. none 90s reference yeah just writing it down uh, that one just snuck in that was like a 1999 reference um mm, still counts and it's not quite even like a Spider-Man Miles Morales in the Spider-Verse relationship either, where he's like trying to be the superhero that she is specifically. It is just she knows how to do the thing he can do. He gets the chance to see it in action. And then when he does it later in the book to save someone at the time he needs help the most, like she shows up and is like, yeah, good job, bud. Sure. Um and the last part of the book, and I can speed through this, is just that he ends up having to go back to Lockless to... Uh, he wants to save Sophia, who he has been thinking about and dreaming about the entire year he's been away. And he also wants to save Thena, his like surrogate mother, um, from the Lockless estate. And he has to eventually convince Corinne to help him with both of those things. And they have a lot of fights about whether or not that's going to happen. Um, and it doesn't wind up with a fully satisfactory ending for everyone, though it does pay off Hiram's earlier, like, man, I'm the son of the guy who owns this place. Where does that go for me? Mm-hmm. It, there's like a real, a real satisfying conclusion to that arc. Um, so yeah, I think that's like, I don't know, that's more of a plot rundown than I expected to do, but I did want to spend some time talking about Philly. (laughs) So what do you, what, what vibes and stuff were you picking up coming in from some of the professional reviews that you read? Why you gotta make it? (laughs) I just felt like it was a, it was a fun half dig at me. No, that's not. That's completely not what the what I, what was intended mm. when I said professional reviews. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. just said it was reviews from major publications sure. and not from Goodreads or okay something dot blogspot dot com. Great. Okay, hit me. <laughs> um, it, it, a lot of what I read was related to it being Coates' first novel and like him making the transition from. Sure. A lot of nonfiction, a lot of essays, a lot of like comics writing to like novel writing. Yeah. Um, so this is from the New York Times review, and this was overall a positive review. Um, Coates's novel sometimes feels as if it were written quickly and it has the virtues and defects of that apparent spontaneity where his nonfiction runs narrow and quite deep. Uh, the water dancer mostly runs wide and fairly shallow. It's more interested in movement than in the intensities of sustained perception. And then uh, from a negative-ish Vox review, um, and th- this is what I was talking about before, where you have a writer with a defined, distinctive voice coming into oh sure novel writing, yep. and this is this is something I, that I've run into into in other books for the show. But um, the Water Dancer is a novel in which everyone talks in basically the same way, which means everyone talks in essays, and that in turn means it is nearly impossible to get a real feel for any of the characters besides Hiram, because all of them are more or less interchangeable. There's walking illustrations of various intellectual ideas that Coates would like to parse out. Um, okay, I don't disagree with. 
most of that like factual observation. Mm-hmm. I and I will. I feel like when this happens a lot, where you're you read a, a good, a really good quote, and I go, "That's true," but I liked it or like I didn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> that's and that's fine, and that that is partly your. Uh, that is your role on the, yeah. on the show. Because, <laughs> well, like, the, you know, the characters who have, who we spend the most time with are Hiram and then maybe Sophia and Thena. Like, and no one really changes except for Hiram and I guess Sophia a little bit. And, the, and Thena goes through some stuff at the end. The... I think if I were to do a second read of this book, I would probably pay a little bit more attention to the relationship with Hiram's father. There's like a really purposefully underwhelming apology slash confessional that we get in in his dad's last days that really does some good work of like Coates being like, man, I do have the skill to humanize this person, but he doesn't deserve it. And let me take that away from him at the end. And, like, that's effective. And I think another read would deepen that, like, father relationship understanding. But, like, I don't know. Most of the characters are put here, yeah, to, like, flesh out a world that reinforces the book's arguments. Um, Mm -hmm. That there are conflicting versions of abolition and they don't fully cancel each other out. They have to work in concert or else you'll never get there. But there mm-hmm. will be frictions between them. Um, there's a lot. There's a bunch of different tensions between the folks working in, in, say, the Philadelphia Underground and the Virginia Underground. And Hiram moving between the two of them is frustrating to him. Um, the the position of Maynard, the the wastoid son, creates a space <laughs> where a character like Corinne can exist, as opposed mm-hmm. to having... Um, there is a character we haven't talked about, oh, I haven't really talked about as an abolitionist, Mr. Fields, who is revealed to be someone else who is working in the underground. He is an interesting character who's like the closest to a like pure-hearted character that we meet, and mm-hmm. it doesn't work out for him. That doesn't they that can't bear out, that can't play out. And so what Coates is doing, yeah, he's setting up a, a cast of characters that give the, the the prism of possibility that he wants to look at. But yeah, I mean, do most of them undergo some sort of like dramatic character arc? No. Does does that feel okay because I wanted to know what Hiram was going to do? Sure. I don't even think it's, I don't even think that that criticism and it, it's not, it's one I ran into a couple of times. I don't even think it's about like characters not having distinct arcs. It's just like everybody literally reads the same because everybody's talking the same. Like you talk, you talk about Hiram. I mean, that's the not whole about point, yeah, yeah, sure. the whole point of his, superpowers that he can travel great distances and you talk about him you know he, he's in multiple cities in multiple places um i mean these places have very distinctive like speech patterns and culture now in our much more like globalized society yeah that's a good point and and then i think they would have felt even more like distinctive and and, and far apart i think that's what they're talking about is like that for all that the book is is very well researched and studied in a lot of ways that it is less worried about making all of its characters feel like 
products of the places which is, that they're in. Which, and I'm and I'm just you know I am I'm paraphrasing based on a bunch of reviews no, I read. No, You're the yeah. one who read the book, but there's an interesting the the other side of that coin. I think that's true. Um, and the reason that I think people probably notice it is that and Hiram cops to this earlier in the book he's like i don't talk that much and because of my memory thing and the fact that like when people talk to me i remember everything they say like people like to open up to me people like to tell me their stories and i remember them forever Mm -hmm. and so basically whenever Hiram meets someone like they just start talking and they got a whole story (laughs) to tell and the additive effect of that is coats building this story where a lot of different characters in this historical period get to have their little story told. But yeah, I can see that like the individual ways that they tell those stories is not that distinct. It is mostly, hi, I'm meeting Hiram today and here is my story. And it is interesting. It is moving. It is thought provoking, but it is, told with a similar voice to the person who met Hiram yesterday. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's sure. true. Um, okay. And the, the other thing I'll, I'll just, the, the two things I'll shout out as we, as we get out of here. Um, Sophia is an interesting character you see, and I saw quotes from Coates, like wrestling quotes from Coates. Good old Coates quotes. And if he doesn't have a podcast, he can use that title. Um, if he wants to be <laughs> on a boat <laughs> with a stoat. Carrying some totes. Uh yeah okay on a they sail in a moat yep um this is getting a little rote anyway um he talks about you got you really got my goat ah. um <laughs> he talks about not wanting the Hiram to be like fully motivated by some sort of like revenge against violence caused to Sophia or something. His power is not destructive. His power is moving people. Um, But also there are parts in the book where Hiram tells the reader, because it's all first person, he's like, the Sophia that I'm trying to rescue is not actually Sophia. The quote he has, um, it is important that, that I tell you this. It is important that you see how little I knew of her dreams, of her redemption. I know now that she had tried to tell me, and I, who so prided myself on listening, simply could not hear. And then ultimately, Sophia is one of the ones who explains why it's like water and, and tells the backstory of this water power to him and and tells the story of what she was running from. Um, and so it's clear that Coates like came into this book and and had some good editors. I think he name checks his wife in a few interviews as well as being like, okay, there is going to be a romance in this book, but how are you going to deal with the fact that like, it shouldn't just be on Hiram's turn, like terms. Um, So I think he mostly does well. Um, Passages like what I just read are mostly how that plays out. Um, And then it's just kind of cool to see Harriet Tubman as a superhero. I got to say she's pretty good at it. (laughs) and she's like got this cool Gandalf energy not Mm -hmm. frustrating Gandalf energy just the good Gandalf energy okay like I don't understand what frustrating Gandalf energy isn't there like there's like you don't know what Gandalf's up to sometimes and he's like kind of going off he's Harry Tubman's pretty straight with Hiram most of the time in this book okay like she's not like got other machinations going on that she's gonna do on her own time she says that she has stuff to do, but it's not like that. Okay. Anyway, if you say so. Got residual Gandalf feelings, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, her being this superhero seems like a, you know, 
feels of a piece with and and a superhero of remembrance and of telling people's stories that is of a piece with Coates's other writing that is like, hey, there's a whole host of people who lived who are just not part of our history and they should be. And what what power would there be in retaining that information or reviving that information? Um and and taking a figure that people do know and putting her in this book and being like, that should be the myth-making that we do is interesting. Um, she does bristle at it. She's like, it's funny when you first meet her, she's like, I mean, I don't think I did all those things. But then she definitely does the most magical thing in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's kind of fun how even she, who is magical, is like, you know, pushes at it a little bit but um i don't know i was it was both once i got into the groove of it 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 did surprise me as it was going while also delivering on some of the like points that i was expecting along the way and that's sure an interesting experience okay um cool well thanks for letting me tell you about this book andrew thanks for telling me about it um thanks for living in this stinky city with me (laughs) i love your stinky city it's our stinky city. It's more yours than mine. Well, go birds. Um, you've been you've been stinking this place up for longer. Than it's I have. true. I'm the source of all the stink. Sorry, everybody. Um, if you want to complain to me about the smell of the city of Philadelphia, um, send me an email specifically at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at OverduePod. Thanks to a bunch of folks who reached out in the past week. We did post our June schedule, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, thanks to Cece, Dixon's, Jake, Mamir, Tom, Maya, Becky, David, Valina, Rachel, Allison, Sal, who just listened to our Dan Brown's Inferno episode, agreed with us on that book. Uh, mm-hmm. Thanks to Sally, who sent us a message about some of the Mark Twain stuff we talked about last episode. If you want to read Mark Twain and Me by Dorothy Quick for a deeper episode uh, perspective on some of the stuff in the latter part of Mark Twain's life that we talked about. Um, and thanks to whomever brought up our episode on Jack Ketchum's Girl Next Door on a Reddit thread about that odious book. Fun to oh, no, I had I had missed that one. Yeah, they someone was like, I couldn't make it through this book. Did anybody else have this trouble? And someone with no other comment just posted the link to our episode. And I just I love that for that person. Thank you. You don't didn't read make that it book. through, but you were understanding of yes. Please don't read that book and be very careful if you listen to that episode. Anyway, thanks to Nick Larangis, uh, who wrote our theme song. He also performed it. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? You should go to OverduePodcast.com. It's an internet website. Up there we have po- links to Apple Podcasts and Google and our RSS feed. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're everywhere. You can't escape us. <laughs> Try it. Uh, Patreon.com slash OverduePod is our Patreon page. We just posted the most recent episode of our Don Quixote long read project, Jagged Little Mill. Yep to our patreon page that was technically may's episode even though it did post on like june 10th we're getting there uh we will be doing june's episode in this coming week if things go to plan so you know we're cashing up you're gonna get those rewards patrons and you non-patrons could get them as well and we'll have a bonus episode recording at the end of this month look out for more information on that 
Um, Andrew, what's the rest of the month's schedule? The rest of the month's schedule, uh, next week I'm reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, which I assume is about Pokemon in some way. That's it. That's definitely what it is. Because of the Team Rocket leader, Giovanni. Uh Uh-huh. And then you are reading The Hours by Michael Cunningham, No Relation. Yep. Our bonus episode will be Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Moir. Moir? Moir. We'll learn. Moir. Yeah. M-U-I-R. We'll figure out the pronunciation. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. That's it. everybody. We'll talk to you next week. And until we hit you then, please try to be happy. was a headgum podcast they want his gift his what they call conduction his virginity no (laughs) (laughs) his ability to do whatever he's doing with his memory (laughs) cut that if you want to i will cut but you could also not cut it if you don't want to okay maybe we'll see uh (laughs)